millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Real Stories Tapes, True Crime, a weekly podcast from Real Stories, the online home of exclusive and award-winning documentaries from all over the world. My name is Stephanie Bauer, and this series introduces you to some of Real Stories' most astounding true crime stories in the form of a podcast. This episode is the third and final part of the twisted tale of an international drug trafficking syndicate known as The Company. If you haven't heard the first two episodes, I can only recommend listening to them and catching up on this bewildering story. We find out how a parachutist's bizarre death leads police into a world of international drug trading, crime kingpins, and assassinations. The intrigue revolves around a former police officer from a respectable Kentucky family named Andrew Thornton. The story is narrated by Anthony Call. This podcast episode is based on the documentary Dangerous Company, and some people's names have been changed. On September 10th, 1985, a low-flying plane raced across the night sky. Inside, two men put on skydiving gear. They put the plane on automatic pilot. When everything was ready, they jumped into the night. The next morning, one of the parachutists was found dead on a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee. On his body, police found over $20 million worth of cocaine. The mysterious man was identified as Drew Thornton, a former narcotics officer from Lexington, Kentucky. The FBI and local law enforcement had been watching Thornton and his close friend Frank Barkley. The men were living a lavish lifestyle, and investigators suspected they were involved in a drug smuggling operation. They called it The Company. Law enforcement agencies had been trailing The Company for years. But the two men always seemed one step ahead of them. After Drew's death, agents were scrambling to try and uncover what may have happened to him and if anyone would have wanted him dead. 
Investigators looked into a piece of rural, wooded property he owned called Triad. Lexington Police Detective John Bizak. This property was down on the Kentucky River, uh, and it uh, was alleged to belong to uh, Trotter, uh, Thornton, and some other folks. There were accusations that there was um, a soldier of fortune type training going on at that facility. Neighbors in the area reported sighting strange men in camouflage gear and hearing the sound of gunshots. Don Powers of the Kentucky State Police. The triad was somewhat always a mystery. We had information that uh, it was an encampment and a training ground probably for uh, terrorists or something of that nature. By 1980, the company was growing. As they got bigger, they needed more and more security. The group had become a strange meld of socialites and social misfits, including smugglers, gun runners, and mercenaries. Profits were at an all-time high, but tensions were splintering the group. Barclay's relentless pursuit of the Chagra Empire infuriated Thornton. To Barclay, his partner seemed short-sighted and disloyal. Word on the street was that their partnership finally cracked under the strain. Thornton and Barclay severed their ties. Drew Thornton and Frank Barkley went from partners to competitors after they had a falling out and broke up their drug smuggling ring. In January 1980, ATF agents heard that Frank and his cousin John were staying at a hotel in Philadelphia. John was under investigation for stealing arms from the China Lake Naval Facility. ATF Special Agent Frank Eddy uh, they were, um, you know, tipping big, big tips to the, the maids. Uh, the maids were told at times to stay out of the rooms, that not to make up the beds, not to do anything. Their behavior made the staff suspicious. Housekeeping! At certain times, the maids did see uh, firearms, guns in the rooms. They notified the Philadelphia police. On January 4th, 1980, authorities raided the motel. They arrested John Barkley, charging him with firearms violations. But detectives had been told two men occupied the room. John Barkley told the cops where to find his cousin. He wasn't far. At the time of the raid, Frank Barkley was at a local airport. Officials caught up with him minutes before he boarded his plane. He was found to be carrying semi-automatic weapons, commando daggers, several fraudulent IDs, and more than $22,000 in cash. The first that we really became involved in this was after they were arrested in Philadelphia. Uh, the Philadelphia police contacted Lexington police and ATF. You know, asking for information on who these guys are, what they're doing, you know, anything about them, they have criminal records. 
The Philadelphia authorities learned that John Barkley was under suspicion for the alleged theft of military hardware from a secret testing site in California. Turn to the right. The Philadelphia police found Frank Barkley had no arrest record or outstanding warrants. He seemed the picture of a typical upscale businessman. But federal authorities revealed that he too was being investigated for his role in the thefts and his links to drugs, guns, and organized crime. Philadelphia police soon recognized that they had inadvertently busted members of a large-scale weapons network. They uncovered a small cache of weapons, silencers, and telephone scramblers. When they raided the room, they found guns, uh, certain other uh, eavesdropping equipment. There was also some documents. One was a, a receipt for a storage facility uh, in Lexington, Kentucky, and of course that piqued everybody's interest. Agents had been tipped off that the door of the storage facility was booby-trapped. The door wasn't booby-trapped. We thought, well, you know, maybe something else is booby-trapped. I mean, here's all these weapons, there's boxes and cartons of ammunition and all kinds of stuff. So we had to be really careful about going through the individual uh, items about, you know, when does this blow up? I mean, is this going to blow up in your face or uh, uh, what's in this box? The assortment of weapons and military gear stunned the officers. Much of it consisted of items stolen from China Lake. A Starlight night scope, Soviet-made machine guns with anti-aircraft mounts, taser stun guns, and anti-tank gun, even semi-automatic M2 carbines. The arsenal was estimated to be worth a quarter of a million dollars. I was very much surprised to find some of the type of weapons that they had. Just isn't something that the average person is going to have in their gun collection, you know. This, of course, indicated to us that these people are involved in some other type of activity. We started uh, tracing the guns. One of the weapons, a 22 caliber survival rifle, uh, was registered in the name of uh, Andrew Thornton, and it had been purchased from a local gun dealer by the name of Mike Kelly. It seemed an open and shut case. Investigators hoped the legal pressure on Barkley would push him to testify against Thornton and other members of the company. But Frank Barkley had other plans. After years of tracking members of the company, a drug and gun running ring based in Lexington, Kentucky, federal officials finally caught a break. For the first time, members of the company were being brought to trial. Frank Barkley was arrested and tried in Lexington, Kentucky. His cousin John in Philadelphia, both on weapons charges. The media was fascinated by the unusual case. The details of it like something from a spy novel. In addition to weapons, Officers found in the motel room a listing of top-secret radio frequencies of the U.S. government, radar jamming equipment, and memos on the 
proper use of disguises and wigs. It seems certain Frank Barkley would go to jail. But as Lexington Herald reporter Valerie Honeycutt recalls, the citizens of Lexington did not all agree. We got letters to the editor from people, from, from ministers and from people saying that it just couldn't be true of these, of these fine men and that it was all uh, allegation and we were just trying to sell papers by muddying these, these folks' names. A lot, a lot of community uh, outrage that we, were, that we were continuing to write about this. CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London in 2021 on Saturday the 25th and 26th September. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths, learn from leading criminologists, immerse yourself in forensic evidence, and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend, partnered with crime and investigation and a perfect opportunity to meet fellow true crime enthusiasts. Limited tickets are on sale now at crimecon.co.uk and we have an exclusive discount code for you. To claim your discount, enter the code REAL at checkout. That's R-E-A-L, REAL. Head over to crimecon.co.uk now. 
ATF agent Frank Eddy. See, when you uh, find uh, these type of devices, the machine guns with anti-aircraft mount, anti-tank guns, radar jamming equipment, yeah, it makes you think, I mean, what, what uh, lawful purpose could these individuals have with that? There's no, no civilian uh, um, use for the, this type of weaponry. Despite their good fortune, members of the company could not exactly breathe easy. By 1981, the gang had splintered apart. Many were in hiding, or the targets of indictments from prosecutors in other states. Mike Kelly and his wife Bonnie had been close friends of Drew and Frank's. Mike, who supplied the two with electronics and guns, soon found himself entangled in a Florida drug case. Agent Jim Huggins. Mike Kelly was employed by some drug smugglers in South Florida to supply electronic equipment to a boat they were equipping for a shipment of marijuana being smuggled into Punta Gorda. In the process of this operation, Mike went to Florida, and when he was down there, an informant blew the whistle on the whole operation, and he was arrested. Kelly denied any knowledge of the drug deal, but the ploy didn't work. He was found guilty of drug conspiracy charges. The first alleged member of the company was behind bars. Mike Kelly was arrested in, uh, in South Florida on the drug smuggling operation, and the prosecutor was uh, pressuring him very hard to get his cooperation. That sent shockwaves throughout the group in Lexington. Charlotte Harbor, Florida, January 16, 1982. Shortly before 7 p.m., The doorbell rang at the home of District Attorney Larry Noland. It happened in seconds. Larry Noland? Yes, how can I help you? Don't go! Larry? Larry? DA Noland was shot in the heart at point-blank range. He was declared dead at the scene. Detectives knew the victim. Noland was a criminal prosecutor known to be tough on drug runners. He was the same prosecutor pressuring Mike Kelly to name his criminal associates. When the prosecutor was killed, uh, his wife had overheard some conversation indicating that possibly he knew who the person was. And then she heard the shots ring out. And uh, it was some indication that, that the killer was known to her husband. According to an autopsy report, the assailant had used wad cutter bullets. Most bullets have a rounded, rounded edge. These are flat with a hole in the center. And what it does when it enters the body, it rips and tears more than a, a, a straight bullet that would go straight through. It makes more, does more damage. Officers canvassed the quiet, affluent neighborhood. A witness recalled seeing a woman with blonde hair in a blue jogging suit. She'd gotten into a car. Based on witness descriptions, a composite sketch of the woman was developed. 
A rental car agent identified Bonnie Kelly, Mike Kelly's wife, from the composite sketch of the alleged shooter. No one was surprised among the Kentucky State Police. Well, it was everyone's suspicion that Bonnie killed the prosecutor. He had quite a reputation of being hard on drug people, uh, people involved in drug trafficking, and I guess they thought they would take a better, have a better chance with someone else. Things were really beginning to hop. Things were beginning to come together. Information was coming fast and furious, and the heat was on. The group, I'm sure, knew it. Bonnie, however, had a solid alibi. Harvey Walker, a close friend of Drew and Frank's, stepped forward claiming that he and Bonnie had been in a business meeting on the night in question. They were stonewalled by Walker. He refused to talk to them. Uh, they didn't really have a, a lot of direct evidence. No one would cooperate. FBI agent Jim Huggins knew they needed someone on the inside with less allegiance to the group someone more easily manipulated than Harvey Walker and Drew Thornton. He set his sights on Bonnie's sister. She had lived with Mike and Bonnie Kelly off and on for years. I want you to tell me what your sister was doing. She was privy to their conversations and the activities of their friends. Fearing she would be indicted as an accomplice, she confessed what she knew to Agent Huggins. She told Huggins that after Mike's arrest, the group was nervous. They needed a plan. Harvey Walker was concerned that if Mike Kelly had uh, agreed to cooperate with the prosecutor, then all their activities, illegal activities they'd been committing over the years would all become to the forefront and they'd all be in a lot of trouble. Shouldn't be a problem. The group had an idea. It was a chance for Bonnie Kelly to reveal her loyalty to the company. Bonnie's sister's information broke the case wide open. After the murder, Bonnie uh, returned to Fort Myers, checked in a motel with uh, Stephen Taylor and her getaway driver. And they called, made a phone call to her sister in Lexington. Bonnie told her sister to give Harvey Walker a message. It's been done. In exchange for immunity, she agreed to testify against her sister at trial. But Mike Kelly's wife, Bonnie, wouldn't take the fall alone. Mike's wife had never been involved in a crime in her entire life. Harvey Walker had given her the weapon. Harvey Walker told her that uh, she should use wad cutter ammunition and she and her sister went to a Kmart in Lexington and purchased a box of wad cutters. And he told her the reason for that, that it would do more damage and would, uh, be, would kill someone easier than a, a regular round. So what do you got? Agents broadened the net and began bringing in anyone they could find who was connected to the company. It was a lengthy investigation because of the number of places that we had to go to the amount of confirmations that we had to do, the amount of grand jury subpoenas that had to go out. Uh, but the more things we corroborated, um, the more we said, geez, we got a tiger by the tail here. In January 1982, Assistant U.S. Attorney Brian Layton indicted Frank and John Barkley, Drew Thornton, Mike Kelly, and 21 other company members. 
the seven counts range from drug trafficking to stealing and receiving government property. Barkley was arrested outside Chicago. Frank Barkley was sentenced to 20 years for the China Lake case, as well as an additional four and a half years on out-of-state drug charges. 20 years was probably the maximum we could get. So it was a just sentence at the time. Um, did he deserve life? If there were any killings, yeah, he deserved life. We just could never pin any killings on him. Thornton was harder to catch. When news of the indictments broke, he fled. Charlie X-ray 
The DEA worked to stem the flow, but to do that, they had to know when the drugs were moving. I had every hope that we would know uh, when Thornton would be taking off. And Schulman knew that we wanted that information. Schulman had orchestrated hundreds, if not thousands, of deals like this before. But to Cobell, this seemed different. Schulman seemed genuinely fond of the stranger from Kentucky. I think he liked him. I think he trusted him. And I think the proof of that, to me, the, is the fact that Thornton actually stayed with Schulman in his uh, townhouse or his condominium at the jockey club. Because Shulman couldn't be trusted, Agent Cobell and his partner kept close tabs on Drew Thornton. But Cobell knew the former police officer might quickly pick up on surveillance. They needed to be careful. Thornton had pulled onto Miami's Palmetto Expressway headed north. Cobell and his partner split up. They kept in contact about Thornton's location via a DEA radio frequency. My partner and I were communicating on the radio right, that Thornton's headed to down to the next exit. Because somebody's in the lead and then somebody stays behind on surveillance. So it becomes pretty clear that as we're communicating, Thornton begins rubbernecking more than just casual looking around. He's looking in the rearview mirror in the, in the passenger's compartment. He's looking in the side rearview mirrors. He's, he's looking for something. It's almost like as we're talking, he's listening to us. Thornton gets off at the next exit, and I communicate with my partner. I said, I don't think he's made us, but he knows something's going on. Let's get off him. Agent Cobell's fears about tracking Thornton were justified. Schulman later told him Thornton had a scanner and had picked up Cobell's communications with his partner. Thornton disappeared that day. It's really much more difficult to conduct an investigation of people that type because they know the, the logical investigative steps that you're going to undertake. The next time Agent Cobell heard about Drew Thornton, he was dead. Cobell was expecting his informant to tell him about Thornton's next drug run, but that information never came. Agent Cobell went to talk with Shulman to try and determine what had happened. Shulman admitted he'd provided Thornton with a plane for his last flight. The plan was to pick up some 800 pounds of cocaine in Colombia. So what can you tell me about The information was new to Agent Cobell. Well, I talked with him. Uh... Shulman had not given me the call uh, that I needed to have. Uh, so that I could be on alert, so that I could alert customs. There's a, there's a whole team of law enforcement people who needed to be put on alert when, when an aircraft launches on a, on a smuggling trip like this one did. Cobell was furious his informant had held out on him. 
He says, well, I was contacted by so-and-so in Columbia, and I got to go up to Kentucky to find out what happened. And I said, and I'm going with you. And then he was, oh, no, you can't do that. And it's like, well, I'm not really asking you. The only logical plan was to go up to Kentucky and try and track down through different various points of contact up there um, who had the cocaine, where it was, and try and find out who else was involved. Agent Cobell headed to Kentucky to try and find the rest of Drew's stash of cocaine and possibly find his murderer. When Drew Thornton was found dead with millions of dollars worth of cocaine strapped to his body, DEA agent Kieran Cobell and his informant Levi Schulman went to find out who had the rest of the drugs. The two men started with the woman closest to Drew. Levi Schulman promised Cobell that he would lead him to Thornton's girlfriend, Rachel Gant. She had agreed to meet with him. Gant admitted being in a hotel the night that Thornton died, waiting for him. Waiting for Drew's call. Gant admitted that uh, Thornton had not showed up, but his accomplice on the aircraft had showed up, and they had Gant and the accomplice had waited until sometime early in the morning for Thornton to come. The reason we asked you down here, but Thornton never came. Now that Thornton was dead, Gant knew his drug business partners would come after her. The Colombians would be looking for their cocaine, and so she knew that she was in a bit of a hard spot. Gant said that she was going to be going into hiding and that any further contact could be uh, made through the attorney. With that, Rachel Gant disappeared, and the rest of the drugs and the money were never recovered. The investigators brought together all the information they gathered on Drew Thornton and pieced together the events leading up to his final flight. On September 10, 1985, Drew Thornton and a co-pilot arrived in Columbia ready to pick up a substantial load, 800 pounds of cocaine, packed in a series of large black duffel bags. The deal was going down, but the DEA had no idea. Schulman had held out on them. Several hours into the flight, somewhere over the southern U.S., Drew noticed it, a plane in the distance. He was convinced they were being followed. Thornton ordered his pilot to lose the plane. But the aircraft in pursuit was larger and gaining fast. Knoxville, Tennessee Police Detective Jerry Day. We surmised that uh, Andrew and uh, his accomplice uh, had uh, thought they had picked up an air tale either from the Drug Enforcement Administration, the FBI, or Customs, uh, 
uh, he had become very paranoid. We know that later on and through the investigation, he was a very paranoid individual. And he thought he was, probably thought he was being followed. For Thornton, there was no choice. Give me the headphones. He couldn't afford to be caught. He radioed Rachel, who was awaiting his arrival in Knoxville. Rachel, Rachel, do you copy? When interviewed by the DEA, Rachel refused to identify Thornton's accomplice or divulge many details. We're going to have but she confirmed that Thornton sounded panicked. She spoke of the chase plane and the need to bail out. Then he signed off for the last time. Rachel Gant never gave investigators any more information. Rachel Gant was uh, very loyal, uh, protecting him right up to the end, and uh, refused to testify for a grand jury in Knoxville, which resulted in her indictment. But to this day, I don't think she's ever betrayed his confidence. A pretty hardcore individual, in my opinion. The men jumped at night, a dangerous prospect even for someone as seasoned as Thornton. Don't worry, you're gonna be fine. According to Gant, the pilot had never jumped before. His was a leap of faith. But Thornton welcomed the danger. Some said he thought he was invincible. But Thornton was not invincible. In fact, none of the gang escaped capture or prosecution. They were a tight, close-knit uh, group of, of friends. And I think that they fed on each other's adventures and, and, and misdeeds. In fact, I think they kind of fed on each other's crimes. The fact that, uh, and that they were all connected with each other, that they were um, somehow involved in the assassinations of both a federal judge and a federal prosecutor, I think speaks volumes about the fact that they thought that they were uh, untouchable. They thought that they were capable of doing anything and trying anything and getting away with anything, and they did. But when indictments and various trials were finally handed down, the company turned on its own, friend testifying against friend. Frank and John Barkley, Mike and Bonnie Kelly, and Harvey Walker were all found guilty on a variety of charges from murder to conspiracy. Only Mike Kelly's drug conviction was reversed on appeal. What happened to Drew Thornton, however, is still not entirely clear. The Knoxville, Tennessee medical examiner eventually declared his death an accident. The mysterious injuries most likely caused by a duffel bag battering him all the way down. Or he may have struck the wing of his own plane when he jumped. But how such an experienced jumper could make such a mistake is unclear. He impacted something as he was exiting the aircraft. The uh, wound to the bottom of his chin is, uh, made it very evident that something had impacted his head. Uh, what we surmised was that it rendered him unconscious uh, to the point that uh, 
uh, he was falling and then once he regained consciousness uh, he immediately pulled his emergency shoe because he wasn't sure how far from the ground he was. But it was too late. The emergency chute jerked Thornton onto his back. Everyone uh, that, that knew Drew uh, liked him personally, but there was always this dark side. It was that dark side that drove Thornton into a world of crime, drugs, and guns. And it was that dark side that ultimately killed him. This podcast episode is based on the documentary Dangerous Company. It is written by Joseph Amadio, directed by Joe Wiecka and Dave Haycox, and produced by New Dominion Pictures. You can watch this story, plus many others, in full length for free if you go to Real Stories' YouTube channel. I'm your host, Stephanie Bauer. If you liked this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review and help us spread the word. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Real Stories Docs. That's one word, Real Stories Docs, spelled D-O-C-S. See you soon. Until then, stay safe. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.